Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. So first of all, what you will not find in Rome traditionally is challah, right? Yeah. Like the braided Jewish bread that we all think of with Shabbat. And when I first went to Rome, I was like, I, I went to a Shabbat dinner. And I was like, where's the challah? Mm-hmm. And they're like, we're not German. Yeah. We're not like Central European Jews. Why don't we don't have challah? This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Leah Koenig is the author of six cookbooks, including The Jewish Cookbook and Modern Jewish Cooking. Her latest book, Portico, is one of my favorites of the busy fall season and taps into the rich history of Jewish food in Rome. On this episode, Leah and I talk about the iconic dishes from Rome's Jewish ghetto and talk about the year she took reporting this wonderful book. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Leah Koenig, welcome to This Is Taste. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? It's great to see you. Yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. You you wrote a few things early days taste, right? Like a story or two? Some of my favorite pieces. The uh, There was an onion powder thing where yeah. I talked about the rights of onion powder and how we all are snobs about it. We are. And Still. I wrote about foraging on TikTok and all yes. sorts of stuff. Yeah. Love that story. That was that was great because that was like right before all those mushroom TikTok books came out. I think yeah. you were ahead of the curve on that one. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I got a copy of Portico, your latest book. You've written several about Jewish food in the world. And, man, it is great. Terrific book. Thank you so much. That means a lot because it's definitely uh, in many ways my most personal and meaningful to me book. Well, let's talk about the evolution of your book work because you are known, as you said, you're known for onion powder, really, in my heart. <laughs> but but also in the world of food, you're known as a, a Jewish food writer and scholar. Um, do it with such intensity and flair and, and voice. I love it. Um, let's talk about the evolution from your earlier books to now where you're focusing on the foods of, of Rome and the Jewish foods of Rome. Yeah. Um, well, I would say early on in my food writing career, I sort of tried not to be a Jewish food writer. I didn't want to get pigeonholed. And I you know, I wanted to write about onion powder. I wanted to write about, you know, rum on a shark boat in the in Cape Cod. That's a real story. Yeah. Um, but at a certain point, the old adage of like, write what you know, just started to feel true for me. And I, I started to question why I was running away from it when really like you can explore the whole world through Jewish cuisine because, you know, a lot of Americans think of Jewish food as Eastern European matzo balls, brisket, latkes, all that stuff. And it is, but it's actually, it's a global cuisine. So my early books and really all of my books have had an eye towards thinking about Jewish food as a way to explore the world and to um, really more deeply appreciate Jewish food as a global cuisine. Right. And I, I fully agree. Ashkenazi cuisine um, is part of the story, but not the full story. And thank we've had God. many uh, Yeah, thank God. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we, we don't need more gefilte fish in our life. I'm, I'm, per, my take, of course, I'm not a huge fan of that dish. But let's talk about Rome and, and how do you get to Rome and how, why is Rome this, this city? You know, it's a city not, we're not talking about Italian food here. Yeah. But if we're talking about Rome in particular. There's a, a really long and rich history of Jewish food in Rome. Yeah. 
enough to write a whole book about it. Yeah. So, you know, my my previous book, uh, The Jewish Cookbook, which came out in 2019, was really like a, a, an exploration of everything. I tried to capture, it's impossible to do, but I tried to capture the entire world of Jewish food from Morocco to Ethiopia to India to Lithuania, whatever, all everywhere. Um, and so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my next book, I really was like, I want to go small. I want to go deep. I want to like focus on one place that means a lot to me. And Rome, my experiences in Rome, I, you know, I traveled a lot there in my 20s and I went on my honeymoon there with my husband in 2009. And, you know, personally and professionally, Rome has always just captivated my attention, right? That's nothing. Everybody feels that way. But for me specifically, it was learning about their 2000 plus year Jewish history um, because it predates. It's older than Ashkenazi yeah. cuisine. It's older than Sephardi cuisine. It is the oldest European Jewish community. Wow. Um, and through the years, there's just been so much strife and so much hardship, but it's kind of created this very unique, um, tight knit community of people and a, a cuisine that's unlike anywhere else. And it's literally in a, a neighborhood. <clears throat> it's not necessarily throughout Rome. Um, there's a quarter, and that's where a focal point is. I'm sure it's cooked in many parts of Rome. Yeah. But really, it's rare to get a cuisine that's that old in literally one part of a city. Yeah, it's one part of a city, but it's also really diverse because the old, the earliest Jews who came to Rome came in like, you know, 2,000 years ago. They were actually emissaries of Judah the Maccabee, if mm. you know the Hanukkah story. Yeah. Um, they I know were, the songs. <laughs> songs are dope, yeah. <laughs> they, were, uh, they were fleeing persecution in ancient Judea and actually came to Rome because the emperors at the time, Augustus and Caesar, they were actually, they were, I wouldn't say they were kind to Jews, but they were tolerant. They were mm -hmm. like, do your thing. Who who are you? We don't care. Just yeah. whatever. Um, and then, you know, so those are the most ancient Jews there. And some people can actually trace their lineage or they say they can all the way back to that time. Who knows? You yeah. know, that's a long, a long time. Um, but then during the Spanish Inquisition, thousands of Sephardi Jews from Spain and Portugal and Sicily moved north mm. to Rome or or east. Um, and that's because at the time, Italy was not a unified country. And Sicily in the south of Italy was actually ruled by Spain. So all of the like Inquisition rules, which were basically convert to Catholicism or else die, yeah. be murdered yeah. or move. And so a lot of people chose to flee um, and ended up in Rome. So now you have this like Sephardic thing going on mm -hmm. in the cuisine that's like seeing things like um, ground almonds and pastries and the use of yeah. raisins and pine nuts in savory and sweet applications. Um, and then in the 1960s, after the Six-Day War in Israel, several thousand Libyan Jews moved mm -hmm. to Rome um, because it, Libya had been a colony of Italy. So there were, they, a lot of them spoke Italian already. It was just an obvious place for them to go. So now you have this like patchwork of Jewish food all focused in this like one city and like this one quarter of this one city. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty it's pretty amazing how much diversity you can get uh, in I such mean, a small we'll, space. We'll get to the methodology in the book and the way you, you yeah. made it because I, I love it. I really connect with that. Um, and we'll also get to some of the iconic dishes. Yeah. But in talking about the timeline, you talk about 1960 and Libyans, uh, Libyan Jews kind of moving in. Let me ask you about the Holocaust and, and like fascist Italy. How did uh, this uh, community survive and, and stay preserved during, you know, fascist Italy and a very difficult time for Jews in Europe? Yeah, it's actually really interesting because when you're talking about Roman Jews and like the hardships they have, I almost think of 
a fascist Holocaust time as less traumatic than the 300 years they were uh, forced by papal decree to live in this in this ghetto, right? Mm-hmm. The word ghetto is actually like an Italian word. It yep. means copper foundry. And the reason that it's associated with a neighborhood is because the first ghetto was actually in Venice, not in Rome. It was 40 years earlier. Wow. And the neighborhood where the Jews were forced to live was right next to a copper foundry, which is called a ghetto. And so that's where the word ghetto originally comes from. Wow. Wild, right? Yeah, crazy like time. language, yeah, no language idea. is wild. Yep. So, you know, Jews in Rome had to live in their locked, gated slum for 300 years, 1550s to 1871. Like, right? Not yep. that long ago when yep. you think about it. Um, we can talk more about that. But to get to your question, you know, during the Holocaust, the community had only been free from the ghetto for, you know, less than 100 years, right? So they were... I think pretty shell shocked by the rise of fascism and, um, you know, just like all of this anti-Semitism happening again. It's like 60 years. Yeah. It's like not even that that much time. I mean, people probably were children when the ghetto ended and then, you know. Yeah. um, And so in a way they were at the beginning of the of the world of World War II, they were kind of protected from the worst of the Nazis because Italy was on the side of Germany at the beginning of the war. And I think they were sort of protected. They kind of left them alone. Mm. But then when Italy switched sides um, and became part of the Allies, all hell broke loose and the Nazis like pulled in to the ghetto neighborhood one day and like rounded up a thousand Jews. And I think 16 of them came back from Auschwitz. Uh, uh. Um but what's interesting is the the Pope at the time didn't really take an official position on the war, but but privately he um, he instructed convents and monasteries to help Jews. And yeah. so a lot of Roman Jews during that time, children especially lived, you know, in convents and hid there. Yeah. Um, and so I met when I was doing my research, a lot of Jews who said, you know, I grew up my first several years. I lived in a convent. Wow. Well, yeah. Thank you for that context in the history yeah. of, of, of this city. Um, let's get into the culinary side. Yeah. And I think if anyone has been to Rome and has explored the Jewish quarter, you know, fried artichoke is, is really the iconic dish. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's only one of you have over a hundred recipes, um, so let's let's talk about the the fried artichoke effect a little yes, bit, please. but also get into some more <laughs> of the the dishes that maybe we don't know as much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you've heard of anything about Jewish Rome, you know about the fried artichokes, carciofi alla Giudia, and pr- excuse my pronunciation, it literally means Jewish style artichoke, um, and. Roman Jews have a special bond with the artichoke. Like, right? I feel like in America we steam it and we dip the leaves and butter, and that's yeah. about all we do. 1975, I mean, that's the jam. <laughs> Thanks, Kef- California. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Roman Jews, they do so many different things with artichokes. They make carpaccio, they make pasta dishes, they um, they make like the, you know, the Roman braised uh, artichokes with, with herbs and things. But the fried artichoke is kind of a miracle to watch being prepared, right? Because you start with this thistle and you peel away your pair away all of the kind of outer green, um, not so yummy parts until yeah, you get the to pine the pine cone stuff. The yeah. pine cone stuff, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and you expose, like, who thought to do that? I don't know. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I think of that in, like, uni. It's like, who thought one day? Both of them are very similar. are. We're, we're daring, you know? We're also very hungry. Yes, we're hungry. In, in times of And stupid famine. sometimes. You know, we, we will eat anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, humans. That's, yeah that's true. Yeah. Um, so, you you know, you pare away all the outside. You get to the soft inner leaves. Um, and it kind of, you cut it so it basically looks like a closed flower. And then you fry an artichoke 
the artichoke twice. And this is something I learned in the process of, of this book. So you fry it once at a fairly low heat, which kind of cooks the um, the artichoke and it makes the, the heart kind of soft and tender and velvety and so good. And then you take it out of the heat and then you let it cool and you open it up so it looks like a flower. And then you fry it again at the kind of standard 350, you know, deep fry temperature. Mm-hmm. So the leaves get really crisp, like kind of potato chippy. Yeah, blooming onion-like. It's a little blooming onion, yeah. um, but with that soft center. And it's literally just the oil, the artichoke, salt, and a little lemon. Like no dipping sauce. No. Like don't defile it with dipping sauce. It I is love that take. It's so great. The most beautiful thing I've ever eaten. I love that. Yeah. And and we we love it. And and why artichokes in Rome? Is it something that's easily in season all the time? No. Um, I mean, yes now, but yeah. it was brought um possibly by the Sephardi Jews in the you know, fifteen, sixteen hundreds. Um, but artichokes were something that uh the Moors of Spain, right? Um cultivated when other people weren't cultivating them. And during, like, through trade, um, they introduced it to, you know, the Jews of Spain and Portugal and Sicily. And so when those Sephardi Jews moved up, they brought their artichoke love with them. And it met the love of deep frying in oil, which already existed in the the Roman ghetto. Um, Because it might seem like crazy to fry things in oil, but Olive oil is so abundant. It was so cheap. Jews had no money. That was actually an economical way for them to prepare Yeah, food. and like fritti culture is certainly something we know about all Italian cuisine. Yeah. Lila, get, let's get into some other dishes that we yeah. don't really connect with Rome, but are really iconic dishes of Roman Jewish cuisine. So one of my favorites is um, a dish. It's a dessert called pizza ebraica. Um, again, like Jewish style or Hebrew style pizza. Um, and it's not a pizza yeah. in terms of what we think of with sauce and cheese. It is a bar cookie because the word pizza, I think, anciently means more like like a pie. So it yeah. can be used more broadly. Um, and so it's basically this like thick bar cookie made with flour and almond flour and then um, oil and wine, like sweet wine. Right. So that's the dough. It's it's you know, it's, there's no dairy in it, mm-hmm. which makes it good for kosher keepers. Yeah. Um, and then it's filled with like almonds, raisins, pine nuts. You're getting the Sephardic influence again there. Um, and now like candied fruit and citron. And it doesn't sound that delicious, but it is one of the more delicious things I've ever sounds eaten. Sounds amazing. It sounds uh, like mean, you're really selling it. I mean, it sounds raisins and pine nuts in a cookie. Yeah, it's so good. Let's go. Well, I know, but we're like chocolate. We're a chocolate chip. We people. certainly are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. I think mean, yeah, we have many tastes in cookies. Now, let me ask you about Shabbat. Are mm-hmm. there dishes that are really iconic Shabbat dishes in Rome? Yes. Um, one of my so first of all, what you will not find in Rome traditionally is challah, right? Yeah. Like the braided Jewish bread that we all think of with Shabbat. And when I first went to Rome, I was like, I, I went to a Shabbat dinner. I was like, where's the challah? Mm-hmm. And they're like, we're not German. Yeah. We're not like Central European Jews. Why don't we don't have challah? Although now you start to see there are some Romans who have like traveled to Israel or yeah. traveled to America, whatever, and 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 use challah because it's so good. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. It's like a really great bread. <laughs> yeah, so. it's like one yeah. of the few things Ashkenazi cuisine can be like, we did that. Respect. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the most iconic dishes is called um, stracotto di manzo. It's literally like a like a beef stew that has very few ingredients, which is a hallmark of Roman Jewish cooking, right? Like taking a few things and mm-hmm. making it. So it's like olive oil, um, beef, typically shin, shin meat, but you can use other types. Mm-hmm. Um, passata, tomato passata, um, sometimes an onion. Some people, some grandmas will tell you like, don't use the onion. It's not, it's not traditional, but no. whatever, you know, um, sometimes wine. Yeah. I was going to say that you got to have a little bit of Chianti in there. Yeah. That's it. 
and it cooks for three hours, right? Like a typical brisket or something. And it is so good. Yeah, and the no. sauce gets so rich. And there's something about the mingling of the like meat and the passata and the olive oil. And it's just, it's one of the more delicious things. And the, the cool thing about that dish is it's a primi and a secondi. It's like an mm-hmm. appetizer or a first course. You serve it, this, the sauce over rigatoni. And then the second course, you serve the meat, kind of like a standalone yeah. dish. So Let me ask you, do you, do you find hummus in Rome? Like hummusayas, do you find like a, a culture there? You do because um, Italians, Roman Jews are very connected with Israel, yeah. like very connected. They have a very strong bond. And so you see people bringing it back. And also the Libyan um, tradition, you see some, you know, things like like hummus and couscous mm-hmm. and, and stuff. Um, it's not a traditional Roman dish, but you do you see schnitzel, you see hummus, uh, you yeah. see falafel. Yeah. Cool. Now let's talk about your kind of method to writing this book. Yeah. And, and as I said in the intro, I, I, I connect with it because the books I like to make, um, I'm seeing in these in this book, which is... Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's it's a fabulous book. And like, honestly, when you go to a place and you shoot in this documentary style, I like to hear about your photographer, but mm-hmm. are you are you going to Rome a lot and, and kind of researching and shooting and then like reverse engineering the recipes? So I pitched this book like many people during the beginning of the pandemic. Huh. Um, so I had been to Rome many times prior and had a lot of taste memories and a lot of, you know, stuff to pull from. But the early part of my research was actually over Zoom. Yeah. Um, using cookbooks, uh, you know, deep diving into, uh, you know, texts and documents and books and then literally like emailing the people I know and saying, can I zoom into your kitchen? Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of that. Um, and I watched them, you know, make artichoke carpaccio or, whatever else. Um, And that was fine. But I knew I had to get there. Mm. And I literally was just like watching the travel, the travel ban and like waiting for it to lift. And in September of 2021, which was not long before my manuscript was due, I think it was due the following January, I saw my window and I was, it was like after Delta and pre-Omicron. And I was like, I'm going. And so the photographer, Kristen Teague, who is a genius. Amazing work. I had great. never met her before, yeah. and we had a great time. We we spent a week in Rome together. She shot a lot of the, you know, atmospheric stuff, the streets, um, the you know, the, the synagogue, the so Shabbat dinners that we went to, things like that. And I cooked with as many people as I could um, because I had a lot of these dishes. Yeah. Partway there. And then when I went there, I was like, oh, I need to change this because that's not how it's really done. I'm really uh, impressed that you were able to capture in a week and really just get all that out there. It's a really cool book. Like, I love it. Thank you. Let's get one more recipe that you really feel like should be made and should be that represents your book so well. So one dish that is just so iconic to the Roman Jewish community is pomodori e mezzo. It's like roasted halved tomatoes. Um, And it's, again, so simple. It's tomato, olive oil, salt, pepper, garlic, basil and a little sugar to help caramelize the tomatoes and roast it in the oven until they're like fully collapsing. You'll find it at the beginning of every Shabbat meal you have, especially during tomato season. So amazing. Um, And it's one of those things where 
you just start to realize that the true magic of Roman Jewish cuisine because it takes so little and it makes something so uh, yeah, special. You've made that. Sorry. Really, I, keep, I feel like I've said that a bunch of times. It's a great point. No, it, it's important because like when you're writing a book and you have very few ingredients, the book actually is important yeah. because there's technique there, there's timing there, and you really nail it. Okay. So we often forget about the last recipe in cookbooks. So I wanted to mm. call yours out, which um, we've done with many of our guests. On page 314, mm-hmm. you have a recipe for mint tea with roasted peanuts. I love that. And it's buried back there. Let's give it the shine it deserves. So that is um, a drink that is actually that comes from the Libyan wing of, of Roman Jewish cuisine. And I actually there was a moment where I was considering not including Libyan dishes because it's a much newer part of the mosaic. But I realized they're there. There are intermarriages, quote unquote, between Libyan yeah. Jews and Roman Jews. So I. I decided it was uh, it was a thing. And also when I went to Rome in 2009, I went to this um, like Jewish food festival at the at their JCC and I had this mint tea with peanuts in it. And it just blew my mind. I was like, what are peanuts doing? So how do you do it? What's, what's, what's going on here? So it's a it's a traditional Libyan pr- presentation. Like, you know, you think of North Africa, you think of mint tea, yeah. right? Like Morocco, it's part of like a, you know, ceremonial and mm-hmm. hospitality, all of that. Um, you take the tea, uh, it's mint leaves and green tea and sugar. And you uh, traditionally you aerate it a bunch. I didn't do that in the book because it's like a whole thing. Mm-hmm. But I talk about how you, you can do it. Um, and you serve it in little glasses, and then you add these um, boiled or roasted peanuts on top, and it's like you get a little snack with your drink. Yeah. And it's so, um, you know, des- desserts are, are kind of simple in in North African Jewish cuisine, so it really is like you get a little something extra yeah. with your with your. Dessert. And the presentation is really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. When I go to Israel, I have family in Beersheba, and we we have Sheba tea, which is like a version of mint, and it's just incredible. Yeah. I love I love making mint tea. I, I bring back leaves and freeze it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, mint tea is underrated for as like um, for any culture. It doesn't have to be Jewish or Israeli or whatever. It yeah. can just be any. Just like ending your meal with mint tea is, is it's not caffeinated. It's it's a great digestive. It, totally, it's great. Makes your breath smell better after all that garlic. It does. <laughs> now, Leela, I want to ask you: Is there another facet of Jewish food that you feel you want to dive into for uh, this kind of single topic, singular work? I mean, you're as I mentioned, I just love your work and I respect it, and you're important to food writing. What's what's what are you thinking? Thank you. That means a lot. Um, my next book, uh, which I'm just getting started on right now, is actually going to be a little going back out broad, but not too broad. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like a big, bold. Jewish dessert book. Mm-hmm. Like think like Claire Safitz's dessert person, but Jewish. And yeah. it's going to have the history. It's going to have the global nature. Um, it's going to celebrate, you know, everything that we think of, like rugelach and honey cake and a lot of things that we don't, uh, you know, think like about. Like compote? Well, I don't know if compote's going to be in there. It might. That's like it might. I, It's like my family's like Passover after the meal. It became like our lore. And I was like, is this really Jewish or is it just? Oh, yeah. Is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's like Russian, Lithuanian. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like slumpy fruit. <laughs> yeah. Slumpy cooked fruit and stewed and good for like the, the cleaning out the pipes, if you know what I mean. But It's like, very good. Yeah. But, but this, you might not have it in there. I'm not sure. I don't have the full list, but you yeah. know, actually, in Portico, there is a recipe for caramelized um, figs and and stone fruit. That's like their version yeah. of compote, and it's really good. So much more delicate and 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 well said yeah. than compote. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I, I I can't wait to have you back in a couple of years or even sooner to talk about this book Thank and you. just your work. 
On This Is Taste, we also have guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Leah, are you ready? I am ready. The best AM pastry with coffee. Um, okay, so if I'm going sweet, I want a sticky cardamom bun. Yeah. And if I'm going savory, I want a cheddar chive biscuit. I love that you split the hair and split the difference Well, there. sometimes you're in a sweet mood, sometimes you're in a savory Fully mood. Fully agree. <laughs> the best dessert, hands down. Best dessert, hands down. Actually, I, the one I'm currently obsessed with is the chocolate almond cake in Portico. It's like yeah. a flourless chocolate cake, but we use actual ground almonds in it, and it's got this little nubby texture. Yeah. So good. I can't wait to make that. I love so an good. almond cake. I love that. It sounds so good. The best bread. Um, I'm obsessed with bread alone, San Francisco sourdough. I buy it every week at the farmer's yeah. market and eat it all the time. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good one. They they have a they have a cafe up up in the Catskills too. Oh, bread alone, it's real cool. Yeah, I think they're from there. Yeah, they are up there. Yeah, exactly. Um, your favorite dinner party dish to make as a host? I would always go with roast chicken, which sounds really boring, but you can do so much with roast chicken. Right. Um, and there's actually a dish that I recently learned about it's like a mexican style roast chicken with lime juice and annatto which i've never really cooked mm. with before and cumin and coriander and then you can either grill it or roast it so good sounds so good do you uh, brine or salt your chicken ahead of time i don't i use kosher meat at home yeah. so it's usually it's got that saltiness from being salted as part of the koshering process definitely yeah yeah that, that's a great hack or a yeah just buy kosher, kosher meat. chicken yeah <laughs> seasoned well totally. um your favorite dinner party dish to bring as a guest um honestly when i'm a guest i want people to cook for me yeah so i'm but i will so i'll usually bring wine or whatever i'm testing like for desserts i'll bring desserts yeah. because i feel like that won't step on the toes of whatever the, the host is yeah. making so any cookie or cake that i'm making yeah that's what i bring delicate dance there oh yes yeah yes. you're smart you've done it before <laughs> um absolute essential bottle of booze to have on hand um so I don't know. OK, this is essential for me now after working on Portico. But um, Chinar, the artichoke yeah. liqueur. Yeah. Um, I hope I'm saying Chinar right. No, you said it I right. Think, I think I am. Yeah, I love it. Um, I had a Chinar spritz at Via Carota yeah. um, in the West Village. And it like just blew my mind. And I just I need to have a bottle at all. It's an it, artichoke liqueur. It is. It. And it's it's there's good value there. It's if you haven't had it, it's great. You can make um, you can make a Manhattan with it if you, you want. Yes, yeah. it's very versatile. The most underrated piece of kitchen equipment? Um, I might get slammed for this, but I would say a cherry or olive pitter because you don't use them very often. But when it's sour cherry season and you have like two pounds of cherries to go through, it's like the only thing that really works yeah. well. Um, and I use it for olives also because my kids, you know, get annoyed when there's pits and olives. No. So I think it's a great call. I think you're right. And, and you, you want it it's small. You can always have it on hand. And yeah, during season, you definitely want it. Your yep. most overrated piece of kitchen equipment. This is silly, but I would say oven mitts. <laughs> wow. I'm like... I'm, Un, wait, you I'm have like leather a, hands? No, I'm not as best as hands, but yeah. like I just grab a dish <laughs> towel. I like feel like people spend so much, you know, money and thinking about the like aesthetic of their oven mitts. I'm like, just grab a dish towel. You're fine. Okay, let's unpack that. I, I agree. There's like those overly designed ones that you... They're great for gifts, but no one really needs an extra one. Right. But man, I found a, a pair of these like bright yellow... They, they like they slide on quickly. Maybe if you're like grilling or barbecuing, you want like a, a solid so. oven mitt. But but you're pro style. You've got that dish towel. You're you're good. I have the burn marks to prove you it. You got the burns to prove <laughs> it. Do you, do you have a professional background? Did you cook? No, I am. A, I am self-taught. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same, same, same. All right. Your favorite cookbook of all time. I got to go with The Book of Jewish Food by Claudia Rodin. Yeah. She's the queen. She in the 70s and 60s went around and gathered recipes from 
Jewish immigrants around the world and did work that like nobody was doing, let alone like a, a mother of, you know, of small children in the 60s and 70s. So she's just and she's still doing it today. She, she is. put out an amazing cookbook like a year ago. Yeah, we put that out. And it's, it's a beautiful book. We did a feature on her with her. And um, it's remarkable that she hasn't been given like that Julia Child moment. Julia's great, but Julia has been kind of overblown. Yeah. And there's a lot of content. Where's the Claudia Rodin work? I mean, let's do a documentary about her. She's or, a very humble person. I is. got to meet her last year and she's just I don't think she has that like you know star she is a star but she she doesn't have that like look at me vibe no it's true yeah but but her legacy is unparalleled uh, your favorite recent cookbook discovery um there's so many good cookbooks out there um this is a quiet pick from like maybe five or six years ago it's called vegan vegetarian and omnivore it's by anna thomas Mm -hmm. um she's famous as like a vegetarian from like the 60s and 70s also she did like love soup and Mm -hmm. vegetarian epicure so she put out a book um probably in like 2018 or 17 about like how to serve everyone at your table whether they're vegan vegetarian or omnivore and how you can like make modular meals and kind of the flexitarian thing super smart super smart super beautiful food that I actually cook a decent amount and I don't think that book gets enough attention yeah so I'm gonna I'm gonna look that one up. yeah I love love to hear that it's really good last but not least your favorite sandwich oh uh so anything by court street grocers yeah but my favorite is their tuna berry sandwich um because I'm a Jew like tuna salad you know (laughs) but theirs has horseradish mayo cranberry sauce yeah. and arugula and it's on like a chewy ciabatta and it's so oh my gosh tuna so cranberry good. i know the combination i've been, i've had that sandwich it's it's unexpected iconic yeah. iconic it works <laughs> leah koenig thank you so much for joining this is taste this was a pleasure thank you Amelia Nirenberg, welcome to This Is Taste. I'm a huge fan of your work, and and before we get to the Kit Kat crime, that's two, that's three Ks in a row. Uh, <laughs> I, I like, I like, I like, I like it so much. I, I, I gotta, I gotta say this. This is one of my favorite stories of the year. <laughs> Thank um, you. But I want to get a little bit about you. Tell me, you have been writing about food for the New York Times. For a minute, how did you get to the food desk? For sure, I no, I've been I I've been at the Times since 2019, and my first full year there was a food reporter year. Um, and loved it. And I wrote all sorts of fun stories. I traveled all over the country and I got to report from Poland and Native American nations and was Mm -hmm. kind of writing a lot about food and agriculture and climate um, and loved that reporting. Um, And then the pandemic happened, which uh, famously, uh, I don't know if you remember it, there was that thing called the pandemic. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It was this insane thing that happened. Um, And the whole newsroom reshuffled a little bit. So I moved kind of off food and started writing about schools and COVID. Um, And I'm now the Connecticut correspondent, but I write about food whenever I can get a chance to do so. So cool. I mean, the, covering the state of Connecticut, you know, a relatively small state, mm-hmm. but close to some big states. <laughs> I'm, I'm generalizing, of course, but there, there's definitely like a, a quirky culture in Connecticut. I used to work there. Yeah, you said you were saying you worked in Stanford. Um, yeah, I was in Stanford back in the day. Yeah, yeah it's great. I'm living in New Haven, uh, a story that is forthcoming. So perhaps by the time this podcast episode is out, uh, will be out. I'm, we're looking at New Haven's pizza, changing pizza ecosystem which has been really mm-hmm. fun. And Connecticut is rebranding. Um, so a much, a much more interesting state than I think I initially realized when I first moved there. 
Oh, I mean, I love Connecticut. Yeah, I, no shade. It, it, it's got beautiful communities mm-hmm. and like it, it, the, the the structure of and the kind of socioeconomics setup and is so varied. I can't imagine you not having stories to write. It's yeah, it's we're overflowing. It's so, it's so interesting, and it's interesting because Connecticut doesn't have any. Um, or maybe it does have counties, but it's not really organized by county. It's organized by town and city. Oh. And so there are, the thing that everyone always says is that there are 169 towns and cities. And so there are 169 Connecticut's. Um, That's cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's interesting. It's weird. It's a weird place. I like it a lot. So before we get to the Kit Kat crime, I, I, I want to tap into a couple of your stories. Mm. And again, Amelia, I, I love the way you, you're so adventurous and you clearly are down to report on so many topics. You're, in, you're, you're like Priya, who, who, I, who I love and used to, used to write for Taste, like, you guys both are just so like you're on, I know you're pitching these stories. I just know, I know she pitches her stories. I know you pitch your stories. It just seems very, you're very interested in food and the culture of food. Thank you. Wow. Being compared to Priya is one of the highest honors I can imagine. She's, um, the, the Kit Kat story was actually her idea. So, um, this, that is a, that is a true honor. Really appreciate it. Oh, respect. Yeah. Well, I, 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 well, yeah, Priya is an incredible story generator and just like, is so, such a in- inquisitive mind. Mm-hmm. But listen, let's talk about some stories because you co-wrote this piece about Dave Portnoy's influence on pizza in America. Mm-hmm. And I want to get a sense, uh, he's the Barstool founder. We don't need to litigate his political views and all that stuff. I don't want to go there, but I do want to hear about how Dave Portnoy is truly one of the most influential people in the country for pizza. Yeah, it's something I mean it's something that I'm noticing in this New Haven story, New Haven pizza story that I'm working on now a month and a half later, um which is that he he loves New Haven pizza. He calls it I think he calls it like the pizza capital of the world. And Dave Portnoy's enthusiasm for pizza is kind of the um the prime mover for this cottage industry of like New Haven pizza entrepreneurial projects that have sprung up around these um, great pizzerias, which is kind of uh, just a micro example of how much his genuine interest in pizza, um, I think real appreciation for kind of like small family businesses, you know, 70 year old recipes, etc., cetera, um, has created this whole fandom around his taste in pizza, his interest in kind of the people who make pizza. Um, I went to his one bite pizza fest in Coney Island um, which was unfortunately during a tropical storm, and I was really cold. Um, you know, has hazards of the job, um, and almost everybody I met there um, has his one bite pizza app, and they 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 like truly won't go to a pizzeria that he hasn't rated, yeah. and it's their like they land in a city on a weekend trip, and whatever he said is the best pizza place in the city is their first meal. Like he's really inspired um, people to really go and and follow him. I have to say, I, I, I do respect Portnoy's um, commitment. It's not a bit. It's like a commitment to the art of pizza, and he clearly loves mm-hmm. it, and he's boosting so many businesses. So I really respect that he he thinks local and he helps pizzerias. I absolutely do not respect his take that New Haven is the center of pizza in America. <laughs> so push against that. My take is Los Angeles. Mm. I think L.A. and Bill Addison just wrote a great piece um, about LA's pizza scene. I think LA is the center of pizza in America, personally. I will take your word for it. I have never had pizza in Los Angeles. I'm from New York, and so whenever I'm in Los Angeles, I get to have um, Mexican and Central American food that we do not get there, or Armenian food. So I, I, totally. I, am, uh, I, I will. I believe you. I don't know. It's, it's, you know, honestly, I'll just say 
Chris, uh, Chris Bianco is, is, yeah. is living there and operating there. You've got quarter sheets with Hannah Ziskin and her partner doing incredible mm-hmm. pizzas. And you've got Danny Boy's famous original downtown, plus like about 20 other slices. I just think it's a great pizza town. Anyways, this is not about me, it's about you. Let's move <laughs> no, like on to, yeah, no, totally. And let's move on to this piece you wrote about private chefs mm. because you did something that we were not able to accomplish at Taste because we've written about this topic and it feels we were really challenged about NDAs and just naming names. Yeah. And I mean, I still think it was a great piece we, we published, but you really went in there and you accomplished this piece that I, I really envied and I loved it so much. What did you learn about private chefs? Thank you for saying that. I, I, I mean, I have been fascinated by private chefs for a really long time. Um, I think that it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of an incredible form of wealth. Like a, you know, it's not second home. It's not third home. It's this, it's 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 a type of wealth that I can't really imagine, which is that you know you aren't you are so wealthy that you don't need to be the person that like feeds your own body ever. Um, <laughs> and um, yes. you know, as you guys noted, as a lot of people have noticed, there has been this kind of rise of private chefs showing their lives online. Um, mm-hmm. And. I, I spend more time on my phone than I should, which I guess, you know, perhaps is good for journalism, perhaps is bad for the rest of my life. Um, and <laughs> totally. just was getting my, my, my algorithms were sending me these beautiful pictures of like glossy herb gardens of, you know, day in the life of private chefs. And it was sending them to my editors in the food desk too. And I think we sort of jointly were, were kind of more interested in not what are they making because these were basically glorified re- recipe videos, but just like what's it like to be, you know, not from wealth and living in the Hamptons and mm-hmm. not really having any friends in the Hamptons and you're making the coolest grilled cheese in the world for, you know, perhaps a persnickety billionaire and kind of w- w- just what's that like as a way to spend a summer, as a way to build a brand? Um, like, what are those relationships like? Um, and it was a lot less Devil Wears Prada than I had expected, at least in what people had told me. But it it it's kind of it's a weird it's a weird job. It seems like it's a really hard yeah. weird job. Yeah, such a weird job, and you lose so much agency and and so much of your personal time if you're traveling. And particularly, I know many private chefs or who people have worked as private chefs. Mm. So I think it's interesting when you you follow somebody who's actually a public figure as a private chef. It's almost like they have they have those short bursts of time where they can be like public and have their own lives and their own agency. But in the behind the scenes, they're just like honestly cooking omakases for some rich guy who wants to just drink Barolo all day. <laughs> um, well, I think the thing that was so, that really surprised me the most about that piece is that a lot of the people I spoke to had come from very high-end restaurants where they basically said, you know, if you're going to be a really high-end chef, you're going to be making, you know, the, the cooking, like you have more freedom and more money as a private chef to serve kind of the same clientele where, you know, if rich people are going to be obnoxious in a restaurant, they're going to be obnoxious in their own home. Um, but if you're a private chef, you know, you're called to, you're called to food, you're called to cook and you are kind of running your own restaurant for, um, more money than you would be if you were running your own restaurant. Um, oh my gosh. I mean, they're making six figures, oh, yeah. uh, you know, mid six figures. Some of them actually making really nice money. Yeah. And so I think that actually, I mean, you know, I, I am not called to be a chef. I hope to never be a chef. Um, they'll have a ton of respect for everybody I know who is a chef, but I think this is actually a pretty, if you, it, it, it you know, 
a democracy if you can keep it, like a private chef gig if you can keep it is a pretty is a pretty sweet gig. Um, yeah, it's such a sweet yeah. gig. Yeah. So let's transition to your story about Danny Tang's fifty five thousand Kit Kats that went missing. Kind of, <laughs> it's a remarkable yarn, Amelia. I don't want to spoil the full story because I'm going to link to it in the show mm-hmm. notes. All listeners should go and actually click on it. But first, let's just go through some of the beats. 55,000 Kit Kats went missing. How did you figure this out? How did you know about this caper? (laughs) Um, Well, Priya Krishna, my brilliant, fantastic, funny colleague, um, I think she it was her idea. And I think she saw it on LinkedIn. Um, The founder of a Japanese snack company, Baksu, um, his name's Danny Tang, uh, imports Japanese snacks for Japanese snack enthusiasts. And as anyone who knows anything about Japanese snacks knows, Japanese Kit Kats are delicious. There are all sorts of different types of flavors um, and not always sold in the U.S. Um, in the U.S., a Kit Kat is kind of like a gas station candy. It's like milk, chocolate, your hands get, get kind of lazy residue on your hands. It's my go-to airplane food, um, which I, I stand by even though I'm mocked. Um, by people who love me for not doing something like Sour Patch Quids, which is like a cooler thing to have an airplane, <laughs> apparently, or or a martini if I were a big girl. Um, <laughs> but um, but the, so Japanese snacks, big, big industry. Um, and so this company, Boxu, imports Japanese snacks. And he, the founder, made this post on LinkedIn that um, I don't have in front of me, but it was basically like, you will not believe this. My Kit Kats are being held for ransom. And I think Priya, with her irrepressible curiosity, was kind of like, what the hell is going on here? And then we got pitched by um, actually his PR team um, Mm -hmm. to do a story about this. And and I told him this and I will tell you our initial response was like, this is the this is either insane or this is the (laughs) weirdest PR stunt that we have ever had like this is like either they've like stolen their own kit kats and they're going to do some big reveal Mm -hmm. and the kit kats aren't actually missing in surprise and so my my (laughs) first interview with danny tang who's the founder of boxu was you know me kind of doing you know hey you know can you explain to me what's going on and you know okay and then they went there and i finally he was i I finally was asking him um and do you have a police report and he said yeah and i said can we see a copy of the police report and he said why and i said well okay i'm gonna come clean with you like is this true (laughs) like is this real um or have you guys just kind of done the funniest pr stunt that we've ever heard and he, he thought that was very funny fortunately but um but it is real they were they were they did disappear um Wow. So let me ask you, I don't, again, don't want to spoil the show, but there's um, a middleman named Shane Black. Mm-hmm. He comes into the, the 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 fray and and this piece is so great because you hear about this like quirky story about missing Kit Kats and e-com and the marketing of Japan, but you also get into a whole narrative about our trucking industry and our, and it's fascinating to hear about how um, trucking it, the, it operates. There's a lot of independent contractors. There's a bit of a, um, a market dynamic there and you you kind of profile this guy shane who doesn't come off that great i must say shane so yeah so i mean this the 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 brilliance of the trucking uh portion i hadn't i hadn't initially seen my editor brian gallagher who is an incredibly smart editor 
um, and basically co-wrote this piece with me, although refused to share the byline, um, was kind of like, wait a second, the, the, the truck guy is the main guy. Basically, um, Boxu nice. is a snack company. They are not a trucking company. They are not a shipping company. So Boxu, the Japanese snack company, buys their Japanese snacks and then sells the Japanese snacks. But they hire, as almost every other company that isn't a trucking company hires, um, they hire people to do the freight bits. So they hire, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and that involves storage facilities and truckers and insurance people and all sorts of this kind of whole world of trucking. But Boxu like many companies, doesn't deal directly with the truckers. They hire a freight broker. And a freight broker is basically the person they hire and they say, okay, the shit, the, the, the freight is landing. We need it in our warehouse. Deal with it. And so a freight broker contracts with the trucks and contracts with the warehouses and deals with it if a truck breaks down and deals with it if a warehouse isn't open. It's just kind of like the person that deals with the trucking. Um, and the person that they hired... Uh, is this guy Shane Black, who's based in Sarasota, Florida, and he is a freight broker. And and I must jump in and say, brilliant image that you captured of him, just in his like townhouse, wearing like kind of like a preppy look with like three monitors, like a brilliant photo to go along with this picture. <laughs> Thanks. I had nothing to do with that, but we agree. We love the photo. You guys did a good job there. Thank yeah. you. Um, so yeah, so Shane Black, uh, as freight brokers do, um, got a job and the job was moved 55,000 Kit Kats from California to New Jersey. And he hired a trucking company, which is what freight brokers do, um, to pick them up. And then as he says in the piece, everything hit the fan. Absolutely. Everything hit the fan. <clears throat> there's denials. There's some identity issues with certain truckers. Again, read the story. I want to close and ask you, so Danny's insurance claim has been has been denied. Yes. Um, minor spoiler there. Um, the Kit Kats are still kind of up in the air. <clears throat> I'm not going to say still missing, but they're up in the air. Mm. Is there a follow up story here that you're working on? We are thinking about it. I think that if we knew, if if anybody in the greater California area has noticed, who's listening to the show. And has noticed a, like a sudden influx of beautiful rare Kit Kats into their local bodega. Um, please shoot me an email. Um, we, but it's I mean it, you know there is no Ocean's Eleven Kit Kat heist in the works. But but if there is more information about the whereabouts of these uh, these priceless Kit Kats, um, please let me know. Um, yeah, your your DMs are yeah, open. my DMs are your, very your Telegram open. is open. Yeah, exactly. At least half of the Kit Kats. Um, are are free floating? Are free agents who might who might be rediscovered or might not? I have to ask you: Can you rank like your top three Japanese Kit Kats right now? <laughs> off your off the top of your head? Yes, I can. Um, my my wonderful mom um actually bought me went to H Mart and bought me uh Japanese Kit Kats to celebrate. Um, and before she did that, um, I loved matcha. I think the matcha ones are yeah. fantastic. They are much better than the pokey ma- uh, uh, pocky matcha sticks. Um, Mm -hmm. which I, I think are very bad. Um, there's an ice cream flavor that I've loved for a long time. It's, uh, crunchy and yummy. Um, but I had for the first time salt lemon, which are really good. They're pale yellow. They taste like key lime pie ish, kind of like lemon bars. They are like nuanced and 
delicious. And I, I've had like three today um, because my mom was <laughs> so nice to buy me some in celebration. Um, so, so salt lemon has now uh, edged out ice cream as my second, but matcha, matcha remains the supreme. I love it. Mm. And you? So I like for, for, for Japanese Kit Kats, um, I do I agree that ice cream is a good one. I think there's a really good peach one mm, personally mm-hmm. that I've had. Um, and there's definitely I've had a nori one before, what? I believe. Wild. Yeah. So wild, wild. Okay, when I so come I, into the I, studio, I love- we're gonna we're gonna nori it up. <laughs> well, totally. And, and you know, I'm going to have you back. This this is a brief conversation, but I'm going to have you back because I want to hear about this this more Connecticut pizza. <laughs> I love. And rebranding to pizza. And also just like I know you're going to have like five more cool stories to talk about. And so you'll come into the studio and we'll do another episode. Great. And we'll have Nori Kit Kats. I would love that. Amelia Nirenberg, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Thank you so much. This was so fun. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.